Rethinking Malinche by Francis Gartunen from Indian Woman of Early Mexico, edited by Susan Schroeder, Stephanie Wood, and Robert Haskett. Copyright 1997 by the University of Oklahoma Press. All rights reserved. This audio file has been created by permission of the publisher for podcasting from this website only and is permitted for non-commercial personal listening only. Rethinking Malinche by Francis Cartanen from the book of essays Indian Women of Early Mexico recorded by Susan Schroeder, Stephanie Wood, and Robert Haskett. This book was published in 1997 by the University of Oklahoma Press in Norman, Oklahoma. This recording was made on April 19, 2006 at the facilities of Grinnell College, Iowa. Our thanks to Grinnell for this courtesy. My essay is in three parts. After an introduction, the first part is the Nawaz Malinsin. Part two is the construction of Malinche. Part three is searching for the person within the myth. This is followed by a conclusion. Marina Malinsin Malinche. There was no one remotely like her then, nor has there been since in the semi-millennial history of the Americas after Columbus. Pocahontas and Sacagawea run distant seconds. Like these other women, she is now enclosed within an edifice of myth, a construction all the more fantastic and obscuring because it has had more centuries to develop and because many different groups have an investment in it. While the myth of Sacagawea was erected almost entirely by the American women's suffrage movement of the late 19th and early 20th century, the idea of Malinche has different resonances for Europeans and for Mexicans, for Latin American men and for feminists, for Mesoamerican Indians and for Mestizos, for Mexican nationalists, historians, sociologists, writers, and artists. Her myth is pervasive within Mexico and beyond its edges, but understandably in light of how long ago the events of the conquest took place, it is much embroidered. It is time to set aside the accretion of colonial and post-colonial ideas about her that are, from our point of view, old, although not nearly old enough to be credible, and to try to think about her anew. Her name, like her person, was handed back and forth and invested with multiple significances. When she was given to Hernando Cortez and his party in 1519, she received the baptismal name of Marina. Nahuatl speakers, who recognize no distinction between R and L, thereafter addressed her reverentially as Malintzin. The Spaniards in turn heard Malintzin as Malinche, 
a name that in the course of Mexican history has become synonymous with selling out to foreigners. Yet, to the old conqueror Bernal Diaz del Castillo, who made her the heroine of his account of the conquest of Mexico, she was always Doña Marina, the respectful Spanish Doña being the very equivalent of the Nahuatl honorific Tzin. The Nahuas Malintzin. Indigenous Mexico has represented Malintzin in myriad ways. She appears in pictorial documents and maps from the 16th century on. In 1552, the Indian city of Tlaxcala, which had allied itself with Cortes against the Aztecs, commissioned a painted record, a lienzo, of the events of the conquest, and she figures again and again in its 88 scenes, versions of which have proliferated like fragments of the true cross. What appears to be the oldest surviving piece is not a lienzo at all, but four scenes painted on native paper and heavily annotated in Nahuatl. Both the handwriting and the style of personal and place name glyphs indicate that this version dates from the mid to late 16th century. Two scenes are of the meeting of Cortes and the Lords of Tlaxcala on the road outside the city. One is of Cortes parleying with the Lord Xicotencat in his palace, and one is of Xicotencat and the other Tlaxcalan lords presenting their daughters to Cortes and his soldiers in a sign of alliance with the Spaniards against Motexoma and the triple alliance of Mexico, Tenochtitlan, Texcoco, and Tlacopan. Marina, so labeled, mediates each scene. It was now our colleagues of Fray Bernardino de Sargun who wrote and illustrated the Florentine Codex, a grand project undertaken in the third quarter of the 16th century. Book 12 tells of the conquest of Mexico in parallel columns of Nahuatl and Spanish, and already in the frontispiece, there Malintzin is, interpreting on the beach even as the Spaniards unload their crates, firearms, and livestock. She appears in half a dozen more illustrations within the text, and Book 12 ends with her interpreting for Cortes as he addresses the defeated rulers of the Triple Alliance. Dramatically, she is a central character in folk theatricals that have survived to the present. At some point after evangelization was underway, pageants were devised in which Malintzin and the captain that is, Cortes, are the agents of the triumph of Christianity, and these enactments live on both in indigenous languages and in Spanish as the dance of the conquest. In some versions of the Danza de la Conquista, Mylintzin dispenses with the captain altogether, and in other versions, a single actor with a double-faced mask plays both Mylintzin and Cortes. This is no new thing, for Bernal Diaz tells us that Nahuatl speakers addressed Cortes himself as Malinche. 
to Diaz, this was simply ellipsis for Marina's captain, since Cortes and his interpreter were always together when negotiations were conducted. Yet, if we consider the long Mesoamerican tradition of two-headed and two-faced figures, and the Aztec tradition of Ixiptlayot, that is, representation, there may be more to this matter of Cortes being Malinche. In Aztec religious practice, chosen human beings served as temporary embodiments of deities, providing them with a conduit through which to speak and act in the world inhabited by humans. At the end of their service, some of these stand-ins would be flayed, and priests would dress in their skins in order to speak and act through them in yet another way. Perhaps the Aztecs and their neighbors perceived the Nahuatl-speaking woman as the Ixiptla, the representative, of something behind both her and Cortes, the mouthpiece of some poorly understood and mysterious Malinche making itself manifest for the first time in Semanawak, the Nahua's own name for their world, where no Malinche had ever been known before. Much has been made of the notion that the indigenes initially perceived the European men as gods. So far as I know, nothing has been made of the possibility that their interpreter was perceived as the Ishipla of a supernatural force. Yet it might help us to understand her remarkable nerve in situations of sheer terror. For the Spaniards, the most horrific fate imaginable was to be taken captive by the Aztecs and sacrificed before their pyramid-topped temples, as some of them in fact were. For a person from within Mesoamerican culture acting out the sort of mediating role Doña Marina had observed, the final trip up the pyramid steps to the awaiting sacrificial knife was inevitable and not without honor. The good Ishipla had to live each day for itself, performing his or her role to perfection. Ishipla refers to both one's representative and one's likeness. Shayakat is both visage and mask. Collectors of Mexican dance paraphernalia catalog scores of Malinsine masks. Many are red. Many bear lizards and snakes on cheek and brow, creatures associated with rain. Some are lovely, and some are hideous. Some are militant. As a participant in the conquest, Malintzin may wear an ostrich-plumed European helmet, or stare out from the open beak of an Aztec eagle warrior's headdress. Perhaps the most striking indigenous representation of her and certainly a very common one among the dance masks, is as a pink-cheeked, blue-eyed European woman, perhaps with devil's horns, or a ruff of butterfly wings, or both. In one drama, she weaves among the dancers, threatening them with a snake, as one by one they fall to the ground, her victims. Here, Malintzin merges with the intimidating Mesoamerican deity, Coat Ikwe, her skirt is snakes, 
and with the biblical Eve. Indians of Mexico's central highlands associate her not only with deficiency of pigment and with reptiles, but also with mountains. For people who live today in the states of Tlaxcala and Puebla, the volcano from which the rains descend on their valley is Malinche. In the Nahuatl communities within the Valley of Mexico, Malinche stories are told about the snowy volcano Istak Siwat, white woman, that looks so much like a sleeping woman. In these stories, she is provider and protector rather than traitor, a presence whose resolute slumber guards agricultural people just as the neighboring volcano Popocatépetl guards her, a theme that is made into hundreds of thousands of Mexican calendars and velvet paintings. According to Bernal Diaz, in 1526, after Cortes had taken her off to be his interpreter among the Mayas, rumors flew among the Spanish residents of Mexico City that Doña Marina had died and been revealed in the night, burning with Cortes in hellfire. But they were reported back alive soon after. That was a false alarm. But in time, she became firmly associated with La Llorona, the wailing woman who haunts Mexican nights, grieving for her children and leading unwary men to their deaths. At the very beginning of Book 12 of the Florentine Codex, a wailing woman appears as an omen of the coming destruction of Aztec Tenochtitlan. The identification of the inconsolable and dangerous Llorona with Malintzin Malinche, came some time later and continues to this day in Mexico among Indians and non-Indians alike. 16th century indigenous representations of Malintzin portray her not as evil or immoral, but as powerful. Her garments are elegant, her hair coiled in the distinctive horns of the proper Nahuatl matron, her demeanor serious. The Nahuatl writers of the Florentine Codex do not fail to accord her name the honorific Tzin every time they mention her, while they only occasionally write Motex or Matzin, especially after the point in their narrative when Cortes and his party occupy Motexoma's city. Later, Cuauhtémoc enters their account and shares with Marina the courtesy of consistent, unfailing scene. Thus, it is clear that neither resistance to the Spaniards nor ultimate surrender deprived an individual of honor in the eyes of Sargun's assistants. Both Cuauhtémoc and Malintzin are spoken of with referential respect, and Motexoma is not a subtle matter of Nahuatl morphology that does not survive translation into English or Spanish. The Construction of Malinche According to Bernal Diaz's account of the conquest, Doña Marina was beautiful and intelligent, capable and loyal, admired and well-liked by the men whose lives were on the line in the conflict. He credits her with repeatedly saving them all from disaster. 
Cortez himself is almost silent about the woman who not only interpreted for him, but also bore him a son, whom he named Martin after his father. But his men and their children and grandchildren corroborated Bernaldez's testimony. At the very end of the 16th century, in a probanza, a petition seeking a reward in recognition of her father's services, Isabel Perez de Arteaga assembled the testimony of witnesses that her father had attached himself to Doña Marina and been the first Spaniard to learn to speak Nahuatl. The witnesses agreed among themselves that Juan Perez de Arteaga, like his leader Cortes, was also called Malinche, a statement in accord with what Bernal Diaz had also written far away in Guatemala. Not least among the individuals who raised probances elaborating Doña Marina's role in the conquest were her own daughter by Juan Jaramillo and her grandson, the son of Don Martin Cortes. So it was that among Creoles, much as in the dance of the conquest, she was celebrated for her crucial aid in defeating all who opposed Cortes and for bringing Christianity to the heathen. Bernal Diaz places in her mouth a speech in which she asserts that she considers herself fortunate to be a Christian and saved from the worship of idols, and moreover to have had the honor of bearing a son for Cortes and to be married to Juan Jaramillo. But this comfortable tradition of Doña Marina as cheerful philanthropist was not to last. Elizabeth Salas has exactly pinpointed the sea change, to quote her. Her status as a great conquistadora declined at exactly the same time that the Mexicans threw out the Spaniards in 1821. The casting of great bells traditionally requires some human blood, and so it seems to be in the forging of national identity. A scapegoat was needed for three centuries of colonial rule, and one was easily found in Doña Marina, who was sexualized as the Indian woman who could not get enough of the white man. In a wink, she was demoted from crucial interpreter and counselor to lover and wily mistress of Cortez, traitor to her race, mother of mestizos. To this day, it seems that hardly any writer, male or female, can describe her in any terms but sexual. Patricia de Fuentes identifies her as Cortez's mistress and the mother of his bastard son. And Franz Blum refers to her as a tender morsel. In her book on Doña Marina, Hilda Kruger writes, For these young Indian women so animal-like in their approach to sex, the idea of chastity or virginity had no meaning at all. It is a relief that Peter Gerhard describes Doña Marina simply as the interpreter and early companion of Cortes. In contrast, in his influential Labyrinth of Solitude, Octavio Paz styles her as the original chingada, and the Mexican nation as Los Hijos de la Chingada. This preoccupation is now well into its second century. Already in 1845, in a contribution to a Yucatecan literary journal, a man named Calero 
portrayed her as an ambitious woman more, quote, ardent, passionate, impetuous than wise, who had to be tutored by the Spaniard Jerónimo de Aguilar and rescued from errors resulting from what he called defects of her basic education. According to Calero, Cortez fell captive to the charms of this woman in the morning of her life, and it was her enchantment rather than any action on his part that resulted in their son, Don Martin. After the revolution, at the height of the Mexican mural movement in 1926, José Clemente Orozco painted Cortés and Malinche naked together, the corpses of Indians beneath their feet. He, reaching across her in a gesture of negation, she, voluptuous, low of brow and dull of eye, a veritable Neanderthal. Today, in the calendar art and velvet paintings of Mexico, she has been trivialized into a swooning, scantily clad blonde bombshell, half Barbie doll, half Anita Ekberg. In La Interminable Conquista de Mexico, the cartoonist Rius could think of nothing else to do with Malinche than to make her into the doxy, whose success depended on being able to speak three languages and, she leers, kiss in three more. Again, in Fregados Pero Cristianos, published for the Colombian quincentenary year, Rios describes her as one of Bente Estupendas Mosas, and already able on first meeting to speak Spanish as well as two local languages. Despite Cortez's existing matrimonial ties, Lears Rios, it might be suspected that this Marina was something more than a bilingual secretary, since she subsequently gave Senor Don Hernan two children, and when he tired of Marina, he sent her to Hernandez Puerto Carrero, and then made her marry Juan Jaramillo in 1524. These popular comic book treatments of the conquest are aimed at exposing to a mass audience the abuse of Mexico's indigenous peoples. As distressing as their bungled history is the sheer misogyny and what passes for social satire. Searching for the person within the myth. Most of what we think we know about Doña Marina we owe to Bernal Diaz del Castillo. Cortes, in his letters to Spain, mentions her just twice, once as my interpreter who is an Indian woman, and once by name as Marina who traveled always in my company after she had been given me as a present with 20 other women. His biographer, Lopez de Gomara, devotes a paragraph or so to her history and the discovery by Cortes of her multilingualism. He says that Cortes offered her more than her liberty if she would be his interpreter and secretary. He concludes, This Marina and her companions were the first Christians to be baptized in all New Spain, and she and Aguilar were the only trustworthy interpreters between our men 
and those of the country. Christian though she had become, Lopez de Gomer refers to her in the very next sentence as the slave girl. For a fuller story, we must turn to Bernal Diaz, but with caution. Despite its convincing tone and detail, his account of the conquest has come in for its share of debunking. In particular, we should take with a grain of salt the speech he attributes to Doña Marina in which she expresses her heartfelt satisfaction with her situation and says she would not exchange her place for a realm all her own. Since her words were supposedly addressed to her kin, they would have been uttered in Nahuatl. So how could Bernal Diaz know for certain what she had said? Verbally facile as he claimed she was, she might have said something quite different to her relatives and then given an altered translation pleasing to Spanish sensibilities. Or Bernal Diaz may have composed the speech himself decades later in the course of writing a good story in which Doña Marina figured as the heroine. Or then again, it might be an accurate report of her sincere sentiments. We cannot know. Lopez de Gomara says she was born into a noble Nahua family in the community of Oluta. Bernal Diaz says it was Painala. In any case, it was near Coatzacoalco, in the transitional area between Nahua, central Mexico, and Maya, Yucatan. Andres de Tapia and Francisco Lopez de Gomara state that as a child she was stolen by merchants and sold into the Maya area. Bernal Diaz weaves a more dramatic story of her being handed over secretly by her mother and stepfather to people of Chicalanco so as to clear the inheritance of her younger half-brother. In this story, too, she changed hands again and ended up in the Chantal Maya area at the base of the Yucatan Peninsula, where she was given to Cortez in a group of 20 women. There can be no doubt that her childhood experiences made her bilingual, an unusual condition for a woman of noble lineage for such women lived extremely circumscribed and sheltered lives. She was able to communicate with Eronimo de Aguilar, who had been marooned in Yucatan for many years and had learned Maya through a total immersion experience comparable to her own. And she spoke her native language with central Mexican Nahuatl speakers, including Motex Soma himself. There are two pieces of evidence that her linguistic accomplishment extended well beyond simple survival bilingualism. First, dialect differences apparently troubled her little. Although she had learned Maya among the Chontales, and Aguila had learned among the Yucatec Mayas, she was able to work with him from the first. Later, she interpreted between Cortez and the Itzamaya ruler Kanek in the heart of the Paten district, although Itzamaya is treated by some Mayanists as a separate language from Chantal and Yucatec Maya. Moreover, although she came from the Tabasco region, far from the central highlands of Mexico, she was able to converse with Notaxuma's emissaries on the Veracruz coast, 
Then she interpreted negotiations with the Tlaxcalans, whose Nahuatl was and still is distinct in a number of ways from the Nahuatl of the Valley of Mexico. As the conquest closed in on Motexoma and the Triple Alliance, she interpreted in the valley itself, in Tenochtitlan, and in the other cities surrounding Lake Texcoco. And some years after that, she had no difficulty with the Nahuatl of communities far off in Honduras. According to Lopez de Gomara, the messengers were very glad to talk with Marina because their language and that of the Mexicans were not very different, except in pronunciation. Yet it is exactly these differences in pronunciation that more often than not lead Nahuatl speakers to claim that their regional dialects are mutually unintelligible. Apparently, Doña Marina had an unusual ability to screen out superficial differences that many find daunting and to attend to deeper commonalities. But the second piece of evidence of her linguistic versatility has to do with something she had to learn. Namely, she was able to understand a certain register of Nahuatl known as Tecpilatoli, lordly speech. Lordly speech is a style of speaking, the only style that would be used in the presence of Motexoma, the greatest lord of all. A speaker of mundane Nahuatl would be as helpless in dealing with it as someone ignorant of the rules of Pig Latin would be in trying to understand and speak the apparent gibberish that results from just a pair of reversal rules applied to English. In Tecpil Atoli, indirection and reversal are all pervasive. Elaborate courtesy requires that one say the opposite of what one means and one adorns one's nouns and verbs with prefixes and suffixes until they resemble grammatical equivalences of the twisting columns of 18th century Mexican churches. Native intuition cannot help with this. One must be schooled in it. That Doña Marina could communicate with Motexoma's representatives, negotiate with the lords of Tlaxcala, investigate a plot in Cholula, and ultimately interpret between Cortez and Motexoma himself, supports the claims of Bernal Diaz, Lopez de Gomara, and others that she had been born and raised within a Nahua noble family before people began to hand her around as a piece of disposable property. <laughs>